Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 82. Whoa, awesome. So it is pouring outside right now. We're at that time, like just before rainy season, where you can kind of start to depend on that late afternoon, early evening thunderstorm and, and deluge. They don't last too long, but they are really powerful when they come through. So there's a crazy one going on right now outside, and I'm, I'm pretty glad that I'm indoors. So since we last spoke, or since I last spoke, I had to make a bit of a quick run. I sort of did not count the correct amount of days on my visa and realized on my very last day that I was now out of days. And so I booked a trip to Singapore, spent a couple of days there, uh, and then came back and renewed that visa for an unknown amount of time here in Jakarta. I've now spent the most amount of time I've spent in one place. I've been here for, for over a month, and I was here earlier for about a week. So, yeah, pretty cool. Uh, also, thank you to you, Voyagers. This has been the most successful month for the podcast in terms of downloads. And we have what? What is today? We have about seven, uh, eight days left in the month. So thank you to all of you for tuning in. That is, that is pretty cool of you. All right, Singapore, man. So this is my second time on this trip. Singapore, I guess depending on your perspective, is like a utopia or a dystopia. If you were to film a movie set 20 years in the future, Singapore would be a pretty good location for it. The architecture is really cool. It's like pristinely clean. There are really cool buildings with like green spaces built into them. So you can look really high up on a skyscraper and see like the whole side of it is plant life. It's cool looking, man. It's, you know, it's pretty in a weird sense, but it's not quite the aesthetic that I like. Uh, I like the safety of it, but in a, from like a sexy perspective, I don't know. I kind of like the, 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 the dingy griminess of, of parts of New York City or uh, other urban areas. But it's a cool contrast for a couple of days. And the food is second to none, man. Like uh, an amazing mixture of Chinese, Malay, Indian. And though the city is quite expensive, you can get uh, traditional food for an affordable price. It's so good, man. Um and like places that specialize in some of like what Westerners might think are oddities, like uh, like innards and intestine and offal and stuff like that. Offal, offal? I don't know. I think offal. Like the the weird bits that are really uh, tasty, man. And uh, yeah, enjoyed two days of sort of uh, gorging. I've got two recommendations for Singapore. Uh, one of them is a book by Amanda Lee Coe, who I believe sp- uh, she splits her time between New York and Singapore. That is called The Ministry of Moral Panic. And it's short stories that I think, you know, I, I'm not from Singapore, I'm not Singaporean, but I think kind of hit on the feel of the place a little bit. Uh, to me, there's a little bit of um, like an underbelly that is sort of brushed aside you know, I've heard all these stories in going to Singapore that like, ah, make sure you don't like throw your gum on the street or spit on the street because you'll get a fine or you'll get arrested or all this stuff. But then there's a red light district. <laughs> it's like you can't spit on the street, but you can go, uh, you know, see prostitutes. Uh, so that's a, a strange uh, duality that exists there. And I think that in a city that is sort of gaining notoriety and popularity now is sort of being uh, very wealthy, right? It's the the crazy rich Asians sort of stereotype for the city now. Um, And similar to Brunei has a per per capita income that's quite high. It doesn't necessarily reflect the everyday life of the everyday person. Uh, Things are are built up in Singapore. So even um, if you're not, you know, staying in a hostel and you're staying in a a more proper hotel, you're going to get a really small space with no windows and it's sort of stacked up. They really sort of maximize the limited amount of geographic real estate that they have there. 
Uh, and so a lot of the housing is uh, really small and, and a bit cramped. But I just point that out to say that, you know, not everybody's walking around with just uh, pockets of overflowing cash in Singapore. But yeah, opportunity to go there, take it. You know, most flights out of Southeast Asia or many flights out of Southeast Asia route their way through Singapore because it's got a really expansive uh, airport, one that functions quite well and efficiently, which is uh, welcome when you've been to certain airports, uh, cough, cough, Manila. But yeah, cool place. Check it out. Okay, this episode today is with David Wieser. He is a little, he, he, he's atypical, but in a sense, typical of, of foreign workers here in Jakarta that I've met in the sense that uh, he and they are, are young and interesting. Uh, so these are, you know, the foreign workers, interns, volunteers that I've met. They're very aware of global politics. They're very knowledgeable of what's going on in the ground, on the ground in Jakarta, and in Indonesia as a whole. They're personable. They're interesting. Uh, so he fits that mold quite well. And similar to a lot of the people that I've been meeting and having discussions with on the podcast, is very humble about what he's doing and doesn't see it as interesting as I do. <laughs> you know, a lot of the people I meet are they'll say, "Well, why do you want to talk to me?" And I'm looking at them like, are you kidding me? Like you are abnormal in the way that you, you're you so plugged into a place that's not your home and so knowledgeable of it and so interested in bettering it for the sake of the people that live there and not for your own gain. And I think that's really admirable and that's, uh, that's something I look up to. The night I met David, so he's a he spent a bit of time as a pastry chef. So the night I met him uh, was in a group setting with some friends and he actually made pastries. And he was uh, gracious enough to not treat me like uh, the weirdo that I probably appeared to be that night as I was profusely sweating in the Jakarta heat that I'm just not adapting to at all. Um, but was super friendly and sweet and, and started talking about some of these crazy stories about how in working in... He, so he worked in, in migration and specifically the research and the work he was doing was in trafficking, the trafficking of migrant laborers. But he talked about how he was in Bali and he was talking to a, I think, current trafficker who was essentially bragging to David about his work in trafficking migrants and uh, laborers and sex workers into Indonesia, like uh, was quite pompous about it and not hiding the fact that this is what his work was. So, I mean, this this to me was, was very interesting and um I was maybe a little bit unfair in that the scope of the questioning that I was asking to David was quite broad, uh, but I think he handled it really well, and he's really knowledgeable on a broad range of topics in Indonesia. And I just, again, I, I think that's really cool. Uh, there's that book, oh gosh, I don't, did it come out in the, I guess it was post or during the Vietnam War, but The Ugly American points out the need for talking about uh, politics and diplomacy and war, but that you can't go into a place and be successful without understanding the history of it, the current uh, structure of it, the social systems and the politics. And um, I think that can translate to travel too, especially in staying in a place for a long time, that you're not going to have quite such a good time and be successful if you don't really understand the place and try to assimilate into it uh, and learn it and understand it. And, you know, in two years, David speaks fluent Bahasa everywhere he goes, uh, is quite knowledgeable on a broad range of topics and is, uh, knows the history of the country and uh, what's happening now and where it might be going. So I had a great conversation with him talking about his work in um, trafficking and in migration into and out of Indonesia. So you can check the show notes for this episode. That is bizarre. The door just opened by itself. Oh. Chalk that up to the wind and not a ghost. Uh, what was I saying? You can check the show notes for this episode and find David's email address. And you can also find a link to my Patreon account. Patreon is a way you can support this podcast financially. It is a monthly subscription-based service in which you can give 50 cents, $1, $5, $100, and that will keep these stories from all around the world coming. If you can't support financially, Trust me, folks, I get it. There are much, 
better causes in which you should be giving your money to before you ever give it to me. Uh, you can still support by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes uh, or the podcast application of your choice. Those go a long way, and maybe that has something to do with this month being quite a successful one. So thank you to all of you. Enjoy this conversation with David. So first, thanks for you know, thanks for doing this. I know you're super busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe to sort of set just the context for people, yep. you can just say like, uh, you know, where you come from and, and what you're doing here in a broad sense in Indonesia. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm from a town called Christchurch in New Zealand, um, a tiny country right in the ass end of the Pacific. Um, over the past, I want to say, ten years. Um, I've moved from uh, Christchurch, uh, lived in Australia, and then I got the opportunity to come and live in Indonesia. Uh, so over my time in Indonesia, I've been doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, uh, most recently working in county human trafficking. You studied like Islamic business affairs or something like that? Uh, ish. So my degree okay. was in security terrorism and counterterrorism. Whoa. But um, I ended up doing a uh, research project when I was living in Yogyakarta into uh, Islamic microfinance and how it affects uh, the development of small communities. Uh, and at the same time, I was, uh, was working for an organization called Bank Sharia Mandiri, uh, which is Indonesia's, uh, one of Indonesia's Sharia banks. Um, officially, I was a marketing intern. Unofficially, they were using me as a debt collector. Really? Hmm. So I think maybe um, for people listening, they'll hear something like Islamic microfinance and think, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> um, it means, Islamic microfinance means uh, basically small loans, uh, amounts of $500, $300, th- amounts that we would find quite small, uh-huh. uh, but are quite large for these people. Uh, and they are loans given in accordance with Sharia principles, which uh. is... Uh, put simply, uh, no interest, um, or say no uh, no unfixed return would be a better way of describing it. Uh, no pork, obviously. Uh, also, no alcohol, uh, no pornography, and no investment in weapons of war. So those are like the five criteria that you need to have for a loan to be Sharia compliant. Interesting. In in Indonesia, mm. not all business has to be in an no, alliance with Sharia. No. Okay. Uh, counterterrorism. Yes. So that's, I mean, that's quite interesting. Uh, what's like the end game in that? Like when you go to school for a degree in counter, like are you thinking you're going to work for like a, like a CIA type of a operation or? Do you want me to be honest? Oh yeah. Any reason I took that degree was because I fucked up so hard in high school that was the only one that would take me. No way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough, man. Uh, so for someone that's looking at, you know, uh, a career to that ends. What would they? Would that be working in like counterterrorism police here in Indonesia? Or no, like foreigners going to be doing that. Okay. Um, so I did it because I wanted to learn. Um, aside from screwing up so hard in high school that I could, I could do nothing else, I uh, was also looking at how I wanted, I wanted to understand how the world worked and what made it tick, mm. um, and specifically what makes conflict tick, what how, how it works. And by doing a degree in that, it didn't necessarily teach me how the world works, but it gave me the tools to ask. Yeah. I want to stay on this for a second if we go, can. Go. So, so this, is, uh, this is something I'm interested in. We, uh, maybe like three weeks back, we went to the uh, Dutch embassy and we saw there was a guy named Max Boone who had been in the, oh gosh, what is it now? 2009 hotel bombing? Mm-hmm. And he lost his legs, and now he works in like de-radicalizing mm. uh, radicals. Mm. And one of the things I thought was really interesting was that uh, a lot of the people who became radicalized were radicalized through 
events that were happening internationally. So mm. it would be what's happening between Palestine and Israel and, you know, Muslims here in Indonesia identifying with the Palestinians in, Palestinians in that situation or uh, w- identifying with Muslims mm. in the south of the Philippines. Mm. Is this like... Is this something that would come up in I don't know, like in in your in your learning? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the big things that we uh, were taught was that uh, there is no, I mean, much in the same way, there is no action without reaction. Mm. There is no reaction without a preceding action. So something has obviously occurred to make a person want to do something like this. Yeah. And so, yeah. For example, uh, like, like the Marriott Hotel bombings in 2009, mm. um, there is obviously going to be an idea and there's going to be a driving factor behind that person's choice um, because it's not something that you get an idea in the morning. You get, have an idea in the morning over coffee and think, all right, cool, I'm going to go blow up a hotel today. It takes a lot of deliberation and planning, yeah? Um, and how I understand it is that a lot of the terrorist attacks or terrorist attacks, quotation marks, that we see today... Um, at least within Western countries and not necessarily driven by a particular hate for that country, but as an expression of anger or oppression because of what they're experiencing in their own countries, such as uh, repeated invasions, occupations by Western powers in the cases of many countries in the Middle East to South Asia. Um, yeah, so that's, that, that's, how I, that's how I see it within the worldwide context. Yeah, and that would yeah. seem to me then a really tricky thing to... Uh, prevent within a given nation because, I mean, Indonesia is not participating in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm. So, like, what do you do about that here at home, I guess, is try to prevent people from going overseas and becoming radicalized? Yeah, so if you're looking at uh, Indonesia from a counter-terrorism perspective, it's a bit different. Um, I guess what I, what I spoke about then was more referring to any any issues that happen in Western countries. Mm. Uh, Indonesia, from independence, has always had an issue. Well, I don't say an issue, but has always had reoccurring elements of, um, of non-state groups that want to have an Islamic society. Uh, so the first one was the Darul Islam movement uh, back in the 1960s and 1950s, uh, which was quickly squashed by Sukarno and then Suharto. And there have been many elements and many mutations since that, such as Jama'a Islamiyah, uh, now growing into uh, JAD, one of the other groups that most yeah. recently committed the attacks in Surabaya and yeah. In Rio. Yeah. So... I mean, I'm, maybe I'm asking you some things yeah. that are unfair Go. to ask you, but just Go. you seem quite knowledgeable on a lot of this stuff. So then, like, globally, I think, mm. uh, like, identity is a big thing right now. Mm. So even in, in the States, like, everybody has is the group they're a part of, um, and there's not a lot of gray area. There's not a lot of agreement between groups, and it could be yeah. anything from you know, political identity to gender identity to interest group or whatever. Uh, and, and you see that all across the world right now, mm. like nationalism is making a recurrence yeah. like to like pre-World War One levels, right? Um, the US, I just read the other day, is like pulling out of the post-Cold War uh, nuclear treaty with Russia. Uh, like how is, the, maybe this is unfair to ask, but like is there, a, how, how do you prevent this, uh, how do you prevent these like radical groups from, uh, you know, gaining prominence in yeah. Indonesia. Yeah. So I, this is an idea that um, myself and some friends um, from both from both sides. So some friends of mine who are like quite conservatively Muslim, some who are very conservatively Christian, and some who are avowedly atheist, mm. and also people who operate in different sides of the political spectrum. An idea I've spoken to them about before has been to can the idea of tolerance. Really. That we should not be thinking about tolerance and using tolerance as a thing to base a national identity off. Instead, um, base a national identity or at least base interactions off being reciprocal. Because if we are always tolerant towards someone, uh, we, are, we are allowing them to do their own thing, we, they allow us to do our thing, but there is no interaction between the ideas and you're not challenging any ideas. Whereas if we're being reciprocal in our interactions, we're actually allowing ourselves to be impacted and be, um, what is it? Allowing ourselves to interact with ideas that might not agree with that of our current social group. Um, what does that maybe look like in practice? Like the reciprocal nature, like what would be the give and take? Interfaith. So the so, so biggest example would be say interfaith, interfaith, interfaith um, meetings. Ah. Yeah. So say, 
Because one of the big lacks that I see within the Indonesian government, uh, also within, well, sorry, not within the Indonesian government, but within Indonesia as a whole, would be there is a lot of talk on the surface about uh, interreligious cooperation. But what I see on the ground is it is very siloed. Mm. Um, you have a Christian, it even goes down to the ethnic sides as well. Um, so you have your, say, Christian uh, ethnically Chinese who are off doing their own thing, your Christian ethnically Batak or ethnically Javanese off doing their own thing. And at the same time, you have the same thing happening within different branches of Islam down to ethnicities as well. Yeah. And so then the, the like Indonesian identity would sort of, like in, in your scenario, take precedent over like a fractured religious identity? Um, not necessarily an Indonesian identity. I wouldn't have that high hopes. Huh. Um, what I would hope for would be quite small would be that people are confronted by ideas and they're forced to re-evaluate to re- their thinking. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not yet skilled enough or even like mature enough to be able to say that that is an idea that would dramatically change the face of Indonesia or the face of the world. Um, purely because I just haven't had enough life experience. But um, in my own practice, when I've been forcing myself to confront, say, my personal uh, preconceptions about people or about events uh, with other people's ideas, uh, it has helped me to actually um, change. That's a really sober and balanced way to look at it, yeah. Yeah. Are you aware of any uh, work that's being done to create that sort of, uh, like, an interfaith setting? Interfaith setting? A A lot is being done. A lot of work is happening. Um, within Jakarta there are several groups and several NGOs that are trying to push it Mm. Uh, whether they are meeting success I don't know okay yeah one thing I'm really interested in uh, and I know you worked with like immigration yeah um, and trafficking and stuff like that so uh, I have a bunch of questions about that fire away okay cool I guess just uh, maybe first broadly um, you can talk about IOM yeah okay yeah so maybe uh like, what is the work that you were doing in a broad sense through, through IOM? Yeah. So with IOM, I was running a research project uh, into human trafficking in the fishing industry uh, and also towards, uh, to, on a broader level, uh, how uh, labour rights violations and human trafficking in, fi- in fisheries in fisheries actually uh, goes, makes its way up the supply chain to the fish that we eat in Western countries. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by like human trafficking in the fishing industry. Yeah. So um, if I go back a bit, so human trafficking uh, is, as most people understand it, human trafficking, we see it as a woman being forced into the sex trade, yeah? That's the general preconception. Um, Within Southeast Asia, uh, that's, while it's still a big problem, it's the biggest case is actually for labour. Ah. So from Indonesia overseas will be domestic work. Is a huge is a is a huge one. Domestic work is going to Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Taiwan, and uh, and the Middle East as well. And there was recently a moratorium actually put on the Middle East by the Indonesian government. Really, um, for domestic workers. And um, the mm. the trafficking part of it is that this is an illegal migration, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so again, just to mm. sort of put a label on it, these are people who are like willing migrants, right? Like they are. Wanting yeah. to do work? Um, would it be beneficial if I explained a bit of the uh, law behind it, first of all? Sure, yeah. yeah. Sweet. So um, according to the Palermo Protocol on, um, on trafficking in persons, uh, and this, so these three principles um, uh, basically guide any counter-human trafficking legislation throughout the world. So you have your... Um, sorry, I work in Indonesian, so I have to think about this in okay. Indonesian first. Chara process tujuan. So you have your, um, the act, method, and goal. Okay. Yeah. So the act of trafficking is to uh, recruit someone, to shelter them, to send them or to transport them, um, or to deceive them by um, violence, threats of violence, it can be through, uh, say, retaining their identity or travel documents, such as your passport or ID card. Uh, it can be through threats against family members. Uh, and it can be through sexual violence as well. Um, or even just being forced to stay in a place. Yeah. 
uh, for the goal of exploiting that person, uh, without exploiting or using that person without due compensation. Uh, for example, in forced marriage, it can be be uh, for ah. sexual for sexual slavery, uh, forced work, um, and uh, general what is it? Um, forced labour in many industries. Uh, the industries that are most vulnerable to it, uh, aside from the sex industry, which we'll know about, of course is the, um, any industry that has a large requirement for a low-skilled to unskilled labour and there is no immediately available source of labour for that industry. So biggest one, fisheries, domestic work, agriculture, especially in large, say, palm oil plantations, so on and so forth. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, it, or is there like a like a prototype of someone who gets trafficked? Like are a lot of people taken from rural areas? Yeah. So, um, I, like to, I, like to th- I like to think about it as, so the only reason trafficking occurs is because we live in a capitalist economic system. Um, because capitalism encourages um, those, on a macro scale, encourages those with more resources to collect more resources because mm. they have that ability. Um, at the same time, uh, people are going to migrate to get access to these areas of larger resources, which is why we have cities. Cities are areas of larger resources where people migrate to to get access to these resources, yeah? Um, and so in rural areas of Indonesia, um, that's a big driver to, uh, to Marantau. So Marantau is a term to migrate. Mm. Um, and it's actually become quite, become quite a cultural thing, especially for some cultures, especially from West Sumatra, yeah? And they will actually migrate to go and find their wealth. Um, the stereotypical one, uh, for say for a domestic worker, would be a lady who lives in uh, central Java, in the Diem Plateau, who is, um, say her husband has just passed away, or maybe she's recently become unemployed, or there are unexpected bills for the family, and she has to go and find work. Um, so she asks around, and then a friend of hers says, hey, I've got friends working, working in Singapore. I've got friends working in Hong Kong. I've got friends working in Malaysia. I know the person who sent them there. They're earning heaps of money. I can help you out. And so this lady, she'll go with, the, so this, um, this lady who needs money, uh, she'll go and meet this person who we say the initial recruiter, who will then say, sure, I can send you as soon as you want. When would you like to go? Uh, immediate, so say that you want to go immediately. More often than not, that person will be taken to Jakarta. Note they haven't really they haven't discussed any contract, any pay, any work conditions, uh, any legality. Uh, but before they go to Jakarta, um, say the, recru- the recruiter will, is more than likely to say, oh, by the way, I'm going to need about 2 million to 5 million rupiah just to cover your costs for your passport, for your um, exit permits, uh, for your flights, etc. And if the migrant, if the migrant is able to find that money, uh, then they'll probably get it from family and go in debt to their family. Otherwise, uh, they'll go in debt to this recruiter. So this is, this is the first step. Uh, from there, they'll go to Jakarta. They will usually be placed in a shelter. So they'll be um, in, say, like a, a boarding house with a bunch of other uh, migrant workers who are ready to go and just waiting for a job to come up. They'll be put in the plane then be sent to a secondary recruitment agency who's, who's in, the, in the receiving country. So in, like I said, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, so on and so forth. Once they are in the receiving country, uh, then they will be sheltered in, um, in this recruitment agent, uh, in this recruitment agent's dormitory until they are found an employer. Yeah. In the home country, then, it would seem that maybe like a lack of availability or, uh, or access to jobs would be a, a reason why somebody would take this route? I would argue it's not necessarily not necessarily a lack of jobs, but a lack of skills. Okay. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's interesting, man, because you know, um, and I say this respectfully, like yeah. you're from New Zealand, mm. you speak the language here, but like technically, like you're a bule, like yes. you know all about this. Like, would then the government not be as keen to this as you are? The government are doing a very good job. Oh, okay. The government are doing very well. In fact, they've actually made um, their own government agency, uh, specifically called Badan Nasional untuk Penempatan dan Perlindungan Tenaga Kerja Indonesia, or the National Agency for the Protection and Placement of Indonesian Migrant Workers. 
Um, and they do a lot of really, really good work in looking after migrant workers and facilitating safe migration for them. Okay. Because it is okay for, for Indonesians to go and work overseas. Like, that's not a bad thing. Right. It's only a bad thing uh, when they are sent irregularly. Yeah. Yeah, like I know the mm. situation in the Philippines is actually quite advantageous for the Philippines to have like a lot of money, you know, workers going yeah. to the Middle East and sending money yeah. back home. Yeah, well, I mean, even my, so remittances or say like mm. uh, remittances of salary for migrant workers globally is more than the entire foreign aid, so than all foreign aid budgets in the world combined. Really? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I would assume with this work there has to be... Um, a lot of sort of international cooperation because if you do have you know a, a company in the Singa in in Singapore that mm -hmm. is uh, using these like not recruiters but like traffickers yeah. uh, that there would have to be some type of collaboration with Singapore to ensure that it's not happening on their end as well. Um, the trafficking, the trafficking uh, with I don't think Singapore I don't think Singapore would be, would be the best example. Okay. Um, so there is a lot of international cooperation in terms. So are you talking about government to government or? Yeah, so let's say that people are being funneled illegally from Indonesia to Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming that the government here would have to be working with the government in Hong Kong to make sure that that's not happening. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, there, there is a consulate general in Hong Kong and they do, and the Indonesian government does have the embassy there, their, their consulate general there. Uh, they do what they can, but unfortunately they are limited in what they can do purely because the caseload is so high. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And you've, uh, I believe, through the first time we met, you were saying that like you've actually met face-to-face -face people who were trafficking. Yeah, so in my case, uh, mainly from fisheries, but also domestic workers, yes. Yeah. And like, <laughs> how does something like that go? Like, are you, uh, was that through IOM? Like you had to go interview this person? Uh, so as part of my uh, research project, yes. Um, it was uh, interviewing uh, uh, former migrant fishermen, so international and domestic migrants. And hearing the stories about what happened, yeah, pretty heavy, huh? Yeah, uh, occasionally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that uh, I think maybe in the, like the in most people's eyes would be a problem is that in Southeast Asia, like there is a lot of sex tourism. Mm. Like, uh, do you know how prevalent that would be in Indonesia? Like, did that? I know you're working primarily in fisheries, but like, was that something that would come up? Um, that's not a question I'm, I have enough experience to answer. Um, I want, I want to say there's not much, but in all honesty, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Did you work with, um, refugees at all? Uh, so the agency used to work for the, uh, the IOM, uh, they do work with refugees, uh, but I never directly worked with them. Okay. Yeah. But, um, maybe you know the answer to this. I think primarily like a lot of refugees that do come to Indonesia are from Islamic nations. Um, yes, it's a, a significant amount, yeah. It's interesting though because, um, and I, you know, I don't want to talk badly, but like right now the, the rupiah is not so strong uh, mm. in terms of, um, you know, the conversion rate to a lot of, you know, Western currencies. So it would be an interesting choice to me then to to migrate to a place where also people are migrating out for work. Does, mm. does that make sense? Uh, before, um, I'll talk about this bit. We might have to edit, edit it later on for political sensitivity. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so with a lot of migrants here, they aren't necessarily going to Indonesia as a final destination. Okay. Uh, more often than not, uh, they are migrating to Indonesia because in the in the early uh, 2010s, uh, and up to the mid 2010s, there was a significant amount of um, of boats leaving South Java and trying to get into into Australian into, into Australian territory. Um, that was the that was the end goal. I see. Um. Through doing this this type of work, mm. and again, this is going to be quite quite loaded, but uh, right now, uh, I'll set the context. Right now in the States, my context for this is with the most recent election, uh, immigration was obviously a, a huge deal. Yeah. And, and people hear like the caricature of build the wall, right? Yeah. Uh, which tells just a part of the story, but we have uh, ICE is our... Uh, 
immigration arm of our law enforcement and ICE is going into communities and uh, deporting people who are uh, there illegally, even if their kids are like enrolled in public schools and things like that. And I don't want to get into the politics of that, but even now you see here on the news, I'm seeing like there's a, a caravan of a couple thousand people marching from Guatemala to up through Mexico to mm. the U.S. border because uh, they're poor, they're dispossessed, and they need help. Mm. Uh, I want to see those people get help as I would want to see people here in Indonesia get help. But I also understand that like there are problems of governance and a completely open border would lead to issues. Do you have any sort of sense from doing this work, like what type of an immigration policy works best or is it situational and would depend on the country? Um, well, what is it? Hindsight is twenty twenty, but I would probably start by not meddling in the affairs of other countries. Yeah, um, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, like one of the, if we want to talk about South America, and do not, I haven't spent a lot of time studying South America. This is just from my observations. Um, if you interfere politically um, or economically in the affairs of other countries um, to a negative extent, um, that's the fruit. Is you're going to be causing a lot of upheaval. You're going to be causing, like, and this is in several generations down the road as well. Mm. You're going to be causing a lot of upheaval, a lot of problems within that nation, and they are going to go towards an area where they have more resources. Um, that's that's not a choice that you have. Yeah. Um, what to do with them? Um, I can't advise in any immigration tactics because I'm not an immigration expert. Um, but a general guide would be um, pick how much you value that person. If you believe that person, that that migrant is of less value than yourself or your clan, uh, quote-unquote, uh, yeah, you're going to treat them as less than that. If you believe they are worth the same as you, um, then, yeah, you're going to treat them uh, like you would yourself. Yeah, I would think maybe a, and a way to prevent so much migration would be to uh, empower the country of origin where people are coming from. Um, I interviewed someone from the ASEAN Foundation here Mm -hmm. And they uh, talked about, um, you know, like a 15-year goal for all of the countries within Southeast Asia and where they would like to see development and um, like a 5% growth in GDP in each country every year. Through the work that you're doing, like where do you see, because Indonesia is in the international scene, a small player, right? It's not Russia, it's not the United States, it's not China, it's not a place that's going to shape the world necessarily, but it is a place that's largely shaped by the world. Like you look at environment, it's an island nation. It's a nation of many islands. Mm. So if countries are not properly disposing of waste and recycling, it's possible that it could end up here. Um, China is looking to get a stronger hold on the South China Sea, which is shipping lanes. U.S. businesses are like, no, we need to keep it open because U.S. businesses want that shipping lane to this part of the world. Uh, so these are things that will affect Indonesia, but Indonesia doesn't necessarily have control of, while at the same time trying to develop more, trying to create an infrastructure that's going to face uh, the increase of uh, earthquakes and tsunamis and things like that. Like, What do you see as the five to ten year future of uh, development in this country? More money going east. More money going to East Indonesia, mm. um, specifically regarding infrastructure and skills development. Yeah. Because here in, in Java, it, it, there's much more advances than there are in the East. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, which has already been done by the current administration as well. The Jokowi the administration has been putting a lot of funding into making sure that uh, East Indonesia hasn't been forgotten. Mm. Um, and it is going well. Um, in five to ten years, um, I can imagine, I, I want this, a similar thing to be happening. Yeah, Yeah, my younger years, man, like I, uh, I would be quite critical of a lot of authority and government and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, But now I can see, you know, it's quite a project here with, with 17,000 islands, mm. uh, with local governances, with local like ethnic identities, uh, different religions, different dialects of Bahasa, sometimes different languages altogether, that it's quite a political project to to run and sustain Indonesia. <laughs> it's, what is it? The unlikely nation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
the unlikely nation. Are you aware of, um, so I think that something people might not know uh, without having a firm grasp on Indonesian history is that like, so yeah, it was, Indonesia was colonized by the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. uh, was initially like, uh, colonized by a a Dutch company, not even, Mm. uh, the Netherlands itself. Is there, uh, in, in, in a post-colonial world here in Indonesia, uh, it, it, there are still a lot of things that are are Dutch, and I was reading about how the Netherlands is helping to like co-fund like uh, a sea berm or seawall in the north. Do you know if there's any? It, it, is there any sort of international agreement? Is there still like a, a post-colonial rollout system where like the Netherlands is? Uh, because they had colonized Indonesia, like, uh, you know, financially responsible or uh, assisting in Indonesia because of that? Hmm. I don't know. Ah. No, I've got no idea. Um, I know they send a lot of money this way, though. They're doing a lot of investment. Mm. Um, and regarding the one, the, the seawall in North Jakarta, um, well, you, you know Jakarta's sinking, right? Yeah, so that's like, insane, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think one of the reasons the Dutch are involved in that is because like they're just one of the best in the world at building dams. Um, so yeah. Um, but regarding your question about whether they, uh, well, if it, whether the Dutch are still repenting is effectively what you're asking. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised, but at the same time, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, man, sort of on that is that, uh, there are advancements right now that are, it's almost like watching an episode of Black Mirror. Like some of the some of the advancements in technology right now. Like right in the states right now, uh, Elon Musk is set to release within a year. I think like this neural link where he's saying like it's gonna it's gonna make us even closer to being cyborgs. That somehow there will be. In, I guess it's in like the beta phase, but somehow there will be some type of a a neural link where like you could read what's going on in neurons in, in my brain, right? Like freaking insane. And he's saying something like, hey, U.S. government, I don't know if you're aware, but like in Michigan, uh, in Flint, the the old lead pipes are leaching into the water system. Yeah. And he's saying like, hey, I can fix that. Or he even said, hey, I can fix China's energy problems by like creating these uh, fields of, of solar panels. And so it's, it, it, and maybe he's just being braggadocious and it's fluff and it's bullshit. But it seems to me that there's this, there's technology to fix a lot of things. Uh, the rivers here are fucking polluted, man. Like you can you can look at the, the the waterways that cut through Jakarta, and there's just always just crap floating in it. Like sometimes l- quite literally, and sometimes they're literally, literally black as ink. Yeah. So I mean, again, like I'm asking you things that are probably way beyond your your skill set and purview, but like you're quite knowledgeable on, on a lot of this stuff. Like, man, what the hell? Like, is someone doing something about that? Like, you can't have. And again, maybe this is an unfair criticism, but you can't have like once a year this like big international cleanup weekend or international big Jakarta cleanup weekend and think that's going to do it. Uh, like, what is being done? Um, a lot of the crap you find in the rivers here is not necessarily uh, due to just like just normal people throwing their trash out. Uh, a lot of it's due to industrial runoff. Mm. Um, and one of the big challenges that Indonesia faces, like um, on a national level, is the decentralization of authority. Ah, um, uh, yes. And when you have, so for in the, in the rivers example, when you have a river that doesn't go through one, say one, pro, so, so you have your nation, then you have your province, your regency, your um, district, and then you have your village. And so when you have, and these all hold different bits of authority, yeah? And so when you have a river, like for example, most of the rivers in Jakarta, uh, they go through... To at least two provinces and at least like five different regencies themselves. And they all have different regulations um, and put bluntly, uh, more opportunities for corruption yeah. than if you did it through one province. If it was a river going through one province. And so you've got a lot of these factories uh, that are further upstream just dumping their, uh, dumping their excess chemicals, their waste products, right into the water. Wow. Yeah. So... Would that have to be then like a reconfiguring and, and a centralization of power to 
be like, hey, now we, you're within the central government's jurisdiction and these are our environmental rules and these are our rules for managing waste through industry. Hmm. Yeah, I can't answer that one, man. That's, that's a, that centralization of power just for environmental stuff would be a bit hard to do, let alone centralization of power for, any, for everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, better, better coordination you can ask for, but better coordination is a hard thing to ask, even, even like Western countries. Let yeah, alone, for sure. Developing ones. I, I would imagine the fact that it's thinking too makes it, also quite difficult because if you have like a waste management system and, and sewers and things like that and, <laughs> and we're now below sea level, like all mm. that stuff is going to be uh, running off into the waterways too. There's even a pump house. So I'm actually at the far north end of Jakarta. is a pump house. Ah. It actually pumps waters out of the rivers into the ocean just to, get, just to, just to, stop, it, just, just to stop the area from flooding. Whoa. But not, it's, it's not like a filterization process. It's just no, no, straight. No. Yeah. Damn, man. <laughs> What is um? Uh, so then, what is your future for work in Indonesia? Uh, my future, um, I'm looking at getting into the private sector, um, into fintech, because uh, I, I believe that uh, private sector development is probably the best way forward. Um, if you're in a company that can invest well in certain areas, uh, that's probably the, the best way to make the country become a better place. Um, so I'll be, I'll be looking at doing uh, my MBA or a master's in some area very soon. And once that's done, uh, start looking at how Indonesia can either uh, basically build good infrastructure so they can respond to things like, like what happened in Palu, the earthquake and yeah. tsunami a few, a few weeks ago, um, how they can respond to that in a better way um, with, through good infrastructure or uh, whether I can get involved in actually um, helping people make good decisions regarding infrastructure. Yeah. You know, it's cool, man. Like uh, you said initially that the, the first degree you, you set your sights on was because you, you might have screwed up a bit when you were younger. Uh, but everything that you're talking about now shows an altruism where you haven't once said like, oh, this is going to be uh, financially viable for me. Um, like why Indonesia and, and why care? Why Indonesia? Um uh, when I first came here as part of my degree, so I got offered a scholarship to come here. Um, what is it? Um, I was like a pretty standard Western kid. Loved drinking, loved weed. Um, wasn't really doing much. But when you leave your own culture and go to a totally different culture, as I'm sure you understand as well, um, the parts of the personality that, that are supported by your home uh, all of a sudden don't quite match. And so you re then, then you start thinking about, hang on, does these parts of my personality that are no longer supported by Indonesian culture, is that really me? Mm. Is, does that, is that really who I am at this point in time? And when you're able to reassess what you really prioritise, uh, which is what Indonesia did for me, it helped me reprioritise re what I actually value in life, uh, you learn to actually value that quite a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you've also made some, some wise decisions, like you, uh, you speak the, the language quite fluently. So you've been, um, you know, accepted into, into the culture and the people as best as, I guess, a foreigner could be, huh? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. I haven't pissed off anyone too much recently. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. One thing I'd like to talk about, because you've also been a lot of places, so yeah. we'll, 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 we'll go off on a tangent for a second. Awesome. Um, for people who know of Bali, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let's put that to the side. What are like? What are some of the best things to go do and see here in uh, Indonesia? Um, best places I've been. Uh, there's a wee spot called uh, Morella in northern Ambon. So Ambon's an island about a three-hour flight south of West Papua, of Incredibly beautiful. Um, it's some of the some of the most some of the best spear fishing and free diving I've ever done there, um, and the fish is delicious. Really? Yeah. You've you've been to Papua then? Uh, Papua, not yet. It's it's definitely a bucket list trip though. Yeah. Most definitely. It's 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 like the least f uh, frequently visited part of Indonesia, I think. Correct. Yeah. Um, any places in in Java outside of uh, Jakarta and, and Jogja? Jakarta and Jogja. Um, I would really recommend going to Malang as well. Malang is very beautiful. Uh, it's up in the hills, up in the mountains, so it's quite cool. 
And there's a big, and because it's a very big area where the Dutch originally planted a lot of, a lot of let's say, like fruit mm. orchards and, ve- and vegetable, um, vegetable growing areas. Um, that's what the area is really big on, delicious fresh food. Um, so it's really, really cool to go to. Sweet. Yeah, yeah you haven't been to Raja Ampat? Not yet. Oh, man. Pretty wild? Yeah, I haven't been, but uh, I know it's like quite a, uh, quite a trip to get there. Mm. Uh, but I'd like to, and like we were talking earlier, Bromo and um, what did I say, Bandung, I think, are, are on my list. Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, let me see where we're at. All right. Thanks, David. Awesome. Cool. Uh, is there, do you want people to be able to get a hold of you or no? Hell yeah, why not? Okay, how, how can they do that? Um, you can contact me. Um, I'm not going to give them a WhatsApp number. That would be a bit foolish. But um, my email would be d.s.viss.er2 cool. um, at gmail.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, like social media or anything like that or no? Social media? Uh, nah. Okay. Nah. We'll leave it at email. Um, awesome. Thanks, David. Cool. Appreciate it. Cheers, bro. Bye. Cool. That is it, folks. This was episode number 81 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to David. Thank you to all of the Voyagers for tuning in. Greatly appreciate all of you. Uh, where am I going next? I don't know. Everyone keeps asking me that. There's a few spots I'm going to hit here in Jakarta, and then I think I might move on to Taiwan and then Japan. And um, I might see a former guest here who fights for Bellator, Alima Leigh McFarland. I might go see her fight on December 15th in Honolulu. My plans are constantly changing. I didn't make it to Bhutan. Um, and I kind of like that. You know, it's nice to not have to plan so far into the future. But that just gives you maybe a little bit of uh, an idea of where I'll be going and where the stories you will be hearing are coming from in the near future. Again, thank you, everybody. And as always... Take care of each other.